Let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 4. Professional sports have proven many times over that the teams with the best players do not always win. There are exceptions to that, but oftentimes it's the team that has learned to play together, the team that has learned the importance of each part, the team that uh, has uh, team chemistry, they call it. Uh, When these teams come together and they're all pulling in the same direction, they have a far greater opportunity to be successful than other teams that have superstars. I will offer you a few examples. In 2002, the New England Patriots played against the greatest show on turf, the St. Louis Rams. They were a prolific offense. They had won the Super Bowl the year previous. They had already beaten the New England Patriots earlier in that season, and they met again in the Super Bowl, and the New England Patriots pulled it off. Just a few years later, 2008, the New York Giants proved that a team is better than a bunch of individual stars when they came up against the 2008 New England Patriots, who had uh, broken all kinds of records that year, individual and team records. They had entered the Super Bowl at 18-0, but not the team that had all of the best players won, the team that played the best as a team won that day. In 2013, the Boston Bruins, you love this, you love sports, I know you do. The Boston Bruins took on the 2013 Pittsburgh Penguins with their lot of superstars led by Sidney Crosby. And the Boston Bruins, though not the better players, but the better team, swept the Pittsburgh Penguins four games to zero. Not the team with the best players. They don't always win. And I'll, One more illustration for you. We've, we've covered football and we've covered hockey. Just one more sport for your entertainment's sake. Basketball. In 2014... The San Antonio Spurs beat the Miami Heat because they had a better team. The Miami Heat had the better individual players. The year previous, if it were not for a last-second miraculous shot by Ray Allen, the Miami Heat beat the San Antonio Spurs. That was one of the exceptions to the rule. The the team with the best players won that year, 2013, but it was only by the skin of their teeth based upon a a really lucky scenario. What's the point of all of this? Listen, it's not just true in the sports world. It's not about the superstars. It's not about those that are the the greatest. A team that wins a championship is comprised of an owner willing to spend money, a general manager who chooses the right players, a head coach and a coaching staff, including trainers that care for their players uh, more than just physically, and players at every level that are pulling in the same direction. What we'll notice this morning, as we consider Colossians chapter 4, is that the church of Jesus Christ functions under these same basic functions. These same concepts apply to the church, that it's not, it's not about a superstar. The church is not about a superstar preacher, and it's not about a spectacular apostle. 
The church is about a group of people empowered by an almighty God who are willing to set aside their own agenda for the glorification of her Savior. What we will understand as we consider this passage is that our King redeems all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, and and in the process of redeeming these people, this church fulfills His plan. And so I want to throw the end out at the beginning, which is how do we respond to this? How should we respond to this concept as we're going through? What should the ultimate outcome? First of all, our response to this is we should bless the Lord. We should bless the Lord when we recognize how He redeems our lives. The Bible says in Psalm 103, verses 2-4, through Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your trespasses, who redeems your life from the pit, from destruction. He redeems our lives from destruction, who crowns you with steadfast love, and mercy. This is how we should respond to a God who redeems all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and, and unites them together into one body for His glory. We should, we should bless the Lord. And a second response that we must have from our consideration this morning is we must, we must find ways, we must look for ways to be involved in the ministry of the gospel. We must look for ways to be involved in the ministry of the gospel. Take a look at Colossians chapter 4. Rather than reading the entire passage in its entirety, we're going to read section by section as we go through our time. We did read this in its entirety earlier. So verses 7 and 8 to begin with. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. What we want to note this morning, first of all, is that the king will enable you to fulfill the need of the hour. He will enable you to fulfill the need of the hour. What we're going to do is we're going to see all these individuals. God doesn't waste space. He didn't include this concluding greeting just so we'd have this ambiguous concept that there were people there. He's telling us about specific people. And we want to note as we go through the passage why God included these people. And and we want to recognize how it speaks to us and how it moves us to be those who are involved in the ministry of the king. So the king can enable you to fulfill the need of the hour. We want to notice first the terms of endearment and respect that Paul uses for Tychicus. He is a beloved brother. The term there, beloved, is agapetos. Agapetos. It's the one who is loved. God uses it of his own son. The the son whom I love. And here Paul says, I I want to talk to you about Tychicus. Tychicus is a lovable brother. A brother whom I love. And a brother who you should love. A brother that is loved among God's people. He's a beloved brother. Not only that, he's a faithful minister. The word there is pistos, faithful, diakonos, deacon. He's a faithful minister. He's a minister of the church. And then he calls him a fellow servant. But the term there is soon with, together, soon 
doulos. Servant is the nice way to call it. The real term is slave. He is a together kind of slave. He's a slave with me. Of whom? Of the Lord. That's what it tells us. This is a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister, and he is a servant. He's a slave of the Lord. He's one who recognized Jesus' kingship. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about this Tychicus. Tychicus was with Paul through thick and thin. We come into um, meeting and hearing of Tychicus uh, in Paul's missionary journey. We meet him in Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's third missionary journey. Tychicus was then entrusted as his developed Uh, as his relationship with Paul developed, he was entrusted with carrying the letters of Colossians and Ephesians to the church, and likely also the book of Philemon. He also carried that likely to to Philemon himself. So Tychicus, traveling with Paul, becoming a part of Paul's team, also was entrusted with this grave responsibility of bringing God's word to these churches. In addition to that, in Titus chapter 3 and verse 12, Tychicus was one of two options, one of two options that Paul said, I'm going to send Tychicus or so-and-so to Crete. What what was he going to send him there for? He was going to go and he was going to be pastoral ministry. He was going to bring the ministry of the Apostle Paul with him as an apostolic representative. Paul entrusted Tychicus of that important responsibility. And then we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 that Paul sends Tychicus to minister in the church of Ephesus. Now, what I want you to notice is this. He's with Paul while he's traveling. He uses Tychicus to send these letters to Colossae, to Ephesus, and also to Philemon. And then he's able to go and minister to the needs of the church of Crete. Minister to the needs of the church of Ephesus. You know what you call a guy like Tychicus? Someone you can entrust with any task. You can entrust this guy with any task. He can fill the need of the hour. Listen, it's so freeing to have ministers who can fill any capacity. When you can simply trust them to get any task done, it frees you as the one who tasks them from the burden of that responsibility so that you can then move on to another ministry responsibility. What's interesting about Tychicus in this current situation, he had, a, he had a pretty big assignment. His current assignment, according to verses, uh, verse 8, was uh, he was to deliver the letter. He was to give a report regarding Paul. He was to obtain a report from the church of Colossae to bring back to Paul. And then he was to comfort the hearts of the church. This is no small task that Tychicus was entrusted with. But you know what, friends? When the king rules your heart, he can enable you to fulfill the need of the hour. And that's exactly what Tychicus was. He was a servant of God who could fulfill the need of the hour. I I can think of so many, I'm not going to name people's names, I can think of so many people in this assembly. You say, hey listen, brother, sister, we need this from you. Could you do this? And they say yes. You don't even have to think about it anymore. You don't even have to think about it you know that it's going to be taken from there and and it's going to be executed properly. What a freeing reality. You know, God can use you to fill the need of the hour. You realize that? See, it's not of you and your ability. 
It's because the king can, can empower you to do these things. Not only do we meet Tychicus, we meet someone else here. And what we notice is that the king can enable a new Christian to serve him. How precious is this? The king can enable a new Christian to serve him. Look at verse 9. With Onesimus. In other words, Tychicus is coming and he's bringing with him Onesimus. Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He's from Colossae. They will make known to you, Tychicus and Onesimus, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Listen, we already know a little bit about Onesimus from Paul's letter to Philemon, don't we? Onesimus was, was Philemon's slave. And Onesimus didn't like that condition. So Onesimus took off. And it's likely that Onesimus took some of Philemon's property with him. And as he takes off, he figures, hey, listen, I'm going to go mingle in to the millions of people that are in the Roman Empire. They'll never find me. And they didn't. But someone did. Did Paul find him? Do you know that Paul wasn't out evangelizing the streets of Rome when Onesimus met him? Paul was under house arrest. Here's Paul in jail. And somehow, this runaway slave who has not been caught, this runaway slave who is on the lamb, somehow this runaway slave comes under the hearing of the gospel through the apostle Paul. Friends, that's what you call a divine appointment. I think Jonah had one of those. He was on the run as well. And when we're on the run, that doesn't limit a sovereign God. And so here's Onesimus, he's, he's running. And God, according to his sovereign purpose, gloriously saves Onesimus. Paul charges Philemon, in the book of Philemon, to accept him back as a beloved brother. Why? Because Onesimus has become profitable to me, Paul, and he will be to you also, Philemon. Here in Colossians, Paul calls him faithful and beloved. Faithful. What a, what a term. The, the, again, it's the term pistos, and then beloved, one who is loved, agapetos, one whom I love, he's a beloved brother. While the book of Colossians doesn't describe Onesimus' service, and some people read into that, well, he's, he's so young in the faith that he, he really can't be conser- considered a minister. The book of Philemon was written around the same time as the book of Colossians. And in the book of Philemon, Paul, God, calls him a deacon. Calls him a diakonos, a minister. Think about that. He was ministering to Paul. So here's this new believer, on the run, having stolen property. He hasn't taken care of it yet. But yet, Paul, because he sees God's hand in Onesimus' life, calls him a servant of God, a faithful and beloved brother. If this situation doesn't convince you of God's sovereignty, you're missing the big picture, friends. Onesimus wasn't seeking after God. And Paul wasn't seeking after Onesimus. An unrelenting, unfailing, perfect God was after Onesimus. And you know what? He found him. 
he found him. He brought him back. Even when little Onesimus is on the lamb. God rescues Onesimus. And listen. He sends a letter to Philemon, which is forever settled in heaven. Think about this insignificant slave. God could have just let him go on his own merry way. Big deal. Slaves have run away before. But God causes Onesimus to meet Paul. Paul rightly gives him the gospel. The gospel has its effect on Onesimus. God rescues Onesimus' heart. And God uses this very strange relationship that never should have happened humanly to write a letter that the church has had for 2,000 years. God is at work. And now what we notice from this passage is this. The king can enable a new Christian, a new Christian that has a bad background, to serve him. I don't know where you're at, friend. I don't know where you're, what your story is. I don't know if you even know the Lord. But maybe it's time to know him. And guess what? He can use you. The king can enable a new Christian to serve him. As we follow a little further, we meet someone else. The king can enable your sacrifice for your fellow ministers. But where are you coming up with that one? Well, we meet a man named Aristarchus, beginning in verse 10. And it's just a very brief little summary. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. That's all he says. Well, I have a few things to say about this, because God talks about him elsewhere. And I want you to think about this man, Aristarchus, this fellow prisoner. He's another traveling companion of Paul. We first hear about him in Acts chapter 19. Let's take a look there, please. Acts 19. We want to find out a little bit about this Aristarchus. We're introduced to him here in a context that is so beautiful. The context is this. Paul has gone into Ephesus and he's given them the gospel because that's what he does. That's what we're supposed to do. That's who the church of God is. We have received the gospel and we are channels of the gospel everywhere we are. And so Paul goes to Ephesus and he gives the gospel to the people and they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look in Acts chapter 19 beginning in verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That is countless dollars. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. This is the context. This is the setting. We're in Ephesus and they've received the gospel and people have been converted and, and they're, they're, they're so gloriously converted they're getting rid of everything that would distract them from trusting in Christ alone. They got rid of it all. None of this is helping me at all. I'll never touch it again. That, that's the response. That's, that's called salvation. When God rids you of that which can plague your spiritual life. Verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, 
but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see that, see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Okay. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So this is, this is the results of their salvation. We've got problems in society, right? Are there any implications to this salt and light deal? If we keep our light under a bushel, if we leave the salt at home, not making this kind of an impact where people are thinking, hey, things are changing because of the gospel, but not so in Ephesus. And so these people are very upset. How upset are they? Verse 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius. And who's this other guy? Aristarchus. We Have we heard of him? <laughs> These are Macedonians, and they are Paul's traveling companions. So the whole city was filled with rage. What, what did they do? They took Gaius, or Gaius, that's probably the best pronunciation, and Aristarchus, and they bring him to the theater. Were they going to have a little play? What did they do in the theater in addition to musical and opera-type productions? Uh, sometimes there were executions there in the theater. Here's Aristarchus. Because of the influence of the gospel, because he's a traveling companion with Paul, because he's a fellow minister of the gospel, here he is dragged into the theater with his life on the line. Many folks would say, okay, <laughs> that's enough. I have other things that I had planned to do with my life. I don't want to have this experience again. Yet in Acts chapter 20, Aristarchus is still with Paul. And furthermore, in Acts chapter 27, if you'll join me there, Aristarchus is still with Paul as Paul is headed off to Rome, not on a missionary journey, friends, but under arrest so his appeal could be heard by Caesar. As Paul heads to Rome, he's on ship after ship and all the things that go on there. Aristarchus is traveling with him and he wasn't under arrest. Did you hear what I just said? Aristarchus is traveling with Paul as he heads to Rome under arrest so his appeal could be heard by Caesar, yet Aristarchus is not under arrest. 
So he's voluntarily facing everything that Paul is facing. Acts 27, beginning in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of that word, we put to sea, (laughs) meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. He is not a prisoner. He already talked about Paul and the other prisoners. Aristarchus was with us. Who's the us? Who's writing? Luke. Well, we'll talk about Luke in a little while. But Aristarchus is willingly going through all the same things that Paul is going through. Paul also willingly, but not willingly, because he's in bondage. He's in chains. He's a a prisoner. Aristarchus. What a man. Now, in Colossians, as Paul resides under house arrest, Aristarchus is still with him. It's the opinion of most that he is not himself under arrest. He is simply there, just willing to minister to the Apostle Paul's needs. I have a question for you. Who gives up everything? Who gives up everything to minister to his fellow minister? I'll tell you who. Only one. Only one who surrendered to King Jesus. Only one who knows that Jesus is King and my life is his. Then we can give up everything so we can minister to a fellow believer, a fellow minister. He give up everything. That's Aristarchus. We come in contact with another man. You don't need to go back there. I'll read it to you. We read it already. In Colossians chapter 4, we come in contact with a man named Mark. Remember Mark? We'll talk about Mark. Well, here's what he says. It says, With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We all remember Mark. We come in contact with Mark in Acts chapter 13. I'd like you to look there, please, with me at verse 4. Mark is accompanying Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He's a man that is interested in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He's interested in spreading the gospel. And here they come as a group, Paul and Barnabas, with Mark, to a place called Cyprus, beginning in verse 4 of Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Listen carefully. They also had John, that's John Mark, that's Mark, as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
But Elamis, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he had saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now listen carefully to verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga or Persia in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Returned to Jerusalem. You see a distinction between Aristarchus and Mark? He's got them he's got them side by each in Colossians chapter four. Aristarchus with him through thick and thin, even though he didn't have to. And then you've got Mark. He was with him, and he turned tail and ran. Why? The text doesn't tell us why Mark took off. But you can imagine, here he is in Cyprus, and he sees this opposition, and, 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 and he hears what Paul has, is saying, and he sees what takes place, and he's just a little bit a little bit overwhelmed by what's going on. And then the, the, the trip to the next location was, was no day at the beach. And so John Mark said, this, this thing isn't for me. But you'll remember, I, like, I really like this about John Mark. You know what I like about John Mark? John Mark immediately got back on the horse. Want to know why I say that? Remember the contention between Paul and Barnabas before the second missionary journey? There's a contention. Barnabas wants to bring him. Paul says, I have no use for him. He, he's, a, he's a coward. We need to bring someone with us that's going to stay the course. And so there's this contention about Mark. Mark was ready to jump back on. But you know what, friends? That contention took one missionary team, divided it, and made two missionary teams. You've got Barnabas and Mark heading in one direction. You've got Paul and Silas heading in another direction. So you've got now, instead of one missionary team, you have two missionary teams. So what I want to say to you is it is interesting how God can use division to produce multiplication. Only the king can do that. Only the king can take division and produce multiplication. Only the king can do that. What happened to Mark? How did he go from where he was, departing, to willing to to go on the next missionary journey, to what later on... Paul says, listen, send Mark to me. He's useful to me. 
for the ministry? Well, something happened. First of all, I'll tell you, it's very obvious to see one of the influences in Mark's life. Barnabas. Barnabas. He stood up against the most predominant missionary of the time. He stood with Mark against Paul. Sometimes, friends, sometimes we have to stand. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it seems against the way. But Barnabas stood for Mark because Mark was ready to be dealing properly. Paul wasn't ready for it. Barnabas was, but God had other intentions. But you also must notice from the context of Scripture that there's more influence in Mark's life than just Barnabas. Peter also had an influence on Barnabas' life. What happened with, with Barnabas and, excuse me, with, with Mark and Peter is at the end of the book of 1 Peter in chapter 5, Peter calls Mark his son. And he wasn't talking about his flesh and blood son. He's talking about his spiritual son. Somehow, Peter influenced Mark. And I wonder why God would use Peter to influence Mark. Any, any thoughts? Did Peter know what it was like to fail? Let me ask you this question. Did Peter know what it was like to get back up? Yeah, he did. If we look only at people's failures and we characterize them only by their failures, we are the miserable wretches. How about their return? How about when God lifts them up? How about when God redeems them? How about when God restores them? Shouldn't we look at that portion? Shouldn't that be what's so prominent in our minds? What I want to tell you about Mark is that the king can enable you to be used by God even after you failed. Even after you failed. Some commentators look at what it says in Colossians. It says, well, Mark, blah, 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 welcome him. But he doesn't call him a co-laborer. Well, he does in Philemon. Stop looking at just one book to get all of your information, right? Like one, one book of the Bible. You've got to look at the whole thing. So some people are making judgments about particular individuals mentioned here and says, well, he doesn't use this word here. And so there must be some reason why he doesn't call him a co-laborer here in, in, uh, in Colossians. Well, he calls him a co-laborer with him in Philemon. And the books were written at the same time. So Paul is, is letting us know that God... That the king can enable someone, someone can enable you to be used even after your failure. Where are you at? Where are you at? Have you been backing off of ministry responsibilities? Have you been distracted? Have you lost your way? Have, have the cares of this life overtaken you to where you're not serving the king? I want to tell you, friends, Mark illustrates that God can use you even after your wayward journey. God can use you even after your failure. As we look a little further in Colossians, take a look back in Colossians chapter 4. We come in contact with another man. Isn't it interesting, 
God is introducing us to people we would not know otherwise. And someday we will see these folks in heaven. And what we want to learn from this fellow, this is the only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture. It says in verse 11, And Jesus, who was called Justice. That's it. Jesus, who was called Justice. We don't know anything about this man, but we like his name. Jesus is the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Savior. Justice is the Greek word, which means just. He's, a, he's a one who re- represents his Savior and does justly. That's what his name says. This is a pretty interesting name. Now, listen to what God says about him. Again, and Jesus who was called Justice. These, these, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. The only Jewish co-workers who are working for the kingdom of God. These are the only ones that are working with me. When we think about uh, this Jesus justice, we don't meet him anywhere else. We only have this one line. It makes me wonder if we might be able to identify with him. You ever feel insignificant? You ever feel like, well, what can I do? God uses people in the background to accomplish his work. God uses people in the background to accomplish his work. You don't have to be in the limelight to serve the king. So the king can enable service from an unknown, Jesus' justice. As we look a little further at the rest of verse 11, this is what we want to note. The king can enable you to be a relief in another's distress. The king can enable you to be a relief in another's distress. Take a look at verse 11. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So here we are, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus. Justice are the only Jewish workers for the kingdom that work with Paul. Their service... Uh, with him was a great relief, a balm to his aching soul. And he uses a, a very specific word here. This is, you're going to find this interesting. The word comfort here is not the same word used earlier in this context. And that one was parakaleo, one who comes alongside and comforts. He uses the term paragoria. Paragoria. And that is where we get our word paragoric. Now you may or may not be familiar with a paragoric, but let's just say this. If last night... You went out and you had some bad clams. You would want some paragoric because it would help to settle your stomach. Paul just called these three people (laughs) Pepto-Bismol. Outstanding. But if you think about it here, here's Paul saying, I'm in prison and I want to go do this, and I want to go here, and I want to go here, and I want to bring the, the gospel, I want to spread the gospel, I want to do these things, and, but I have Aristarchus, and I have Mark, and I have Jesus Justice. These are the only Jewish people, the ones that I would give my very own soul to redeem them. Jesus Justice, Mark, and, and Aristarchus, they're out doing the work of the ministry, and they are a great relief to my aching soul, my stomach that is in knots for my people. These people are filling the ministry, and they're a relief to my soul. Listen, 
You. You, where you're seated. You. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Is Jesus your King? Jesus can use you. The King can use you to bring a great relief to those in distress. Paul's in great distress. Let me tell you, someone that would be willing to pen something in Romans that I could not write, I could not say, I could not pray. God, condemn me if you'll bring the Jewish people to yourself. I cannot pray that prayer. I have not come to that level of sanctification. Have you? Send me to hell so they'll go to heaven. This is how distressed he was in his heart. But Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus' justice. The Pepto-Bismol of the soul. Us. We can do this. When the king is ruling our heart, we can bring relief. Look a little further, please. Verses 12 and 13 will bring us this concept. The king can enable you to beseech the Lord for the growth of gospel churches. A little strange. It's a little strange, the wording here that I've given you. The king can enable you to beseech the Lord. So the king can cause you to talk to him. The king can enable you to beseech the Lord for the growth of gospel churches. Take a look at verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. It is likely that Epaphras was the one who founded the church in Colossae. It is likely that Epaphras was still their pastor, though he has been sent gone on a a journey to to minister to and hear from the Apostle Paul. He's likely there on an extended stay, but he's likely the pastor of the church. And you can hear his pastoral heart in prayer in verse 12. He's laboring fervently for them in prayer, that they would stand perfect or mature in all the will of God. That's his, his, his whole goal, is that the church would be pure, the church would be right with, with God. And you can see this, this intensity. There's, he's laboring fervently. The term there is agonizomai. He is, he's really laboring over this. In verse 13, not just for, for Colossae, he has an evangelistic zeal. He, he has a, a missionary zeal. He wants Laodicea and Hierapolis also to be right with the Lord. He has this great zeal, and the word there, zeal, has the idea of pain. He has pain. Kind of like Paul has this burden for the Jewish people. Epaphras. He's so burdened for Colossae. He's so burdened for Laodicea. He's so burdened for for Hierapolis. He is wrestling with God. This is the kind of language that God is using through Paul. That he is is agonizing and he's in pain. It almost gives us that impression of back when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord. I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. You know, I find this to be an interesting concept. You know, this is, this is really 
the kind of spirit that Paul had for the church. And it's the kind of spirit that, that we need to have for the church. Here's what Paul wrote in Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And to the Corinthians he wrote, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I think it's very interesting to note that a sovereign sovereign God who has planned the course of his church solicits our involvement through prayer. That's the example that Epaphras sets for us. That there's a solicitation of this kind of a fervent, agonizing, painful, zealous prayer for God's people here, but not just here, right? Laodicea, Hierapolis, not just Warwick, Cranston, Coventry. Where else? North Kingstown, East Greenwich, West Greenwich, Lincoln, Massachusetts, New England, the East Coast, the United States, Africa, Asia, Australia, wherever there are people, there should be this passion that we have that God bring forth fruit of the gospel, that people come to know Jesus as their Savior. There should be this zeal. And God is is soliciting for us to be in prayer about His sovereign will. Folks, don't, don't take this lightly. Don't take this lightly. It should be the passion of God's church to see churches all around the world filled with surrendered worshipers who sing songs like, We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. This is what we want. We want people to be worshipers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Lord, the King, can enable you and I to have this passion, to have this burden, to minister in such a way that we're beseeching the Lord for the growth of gospel churches. Now, we come to our eighth point. Point number eight. Yes, I haven't been repeating them all, but this is point number eight. Listen carefully. The King can enable you to use your natural giftedness for his service. God wants to use your spiritual gift because he's given it to you, right? So we need to be completely surrendered to the Lord for him to use the spiritual gifts because it's, it's the Spirit's gift, not my gift from the Spirit. It's the Spirit's gift. So God wants to use our spiritual gifts. But don't miss this. God also wants to use your natural gifts for his service. And the king can enable you to use your natural giftedness for his service. And we come across this humble man, this faithful man, this man who from from stem to stern, in thick and thin, in, in tribulation and out of tribulation, in every way, stuck by Paul's side. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. I want you to think about this, friends. You don't have to go too far to start thinking about people in a modern day example of this type of a servant, right? Think of Dr. Jack Mitchell. You think of um, Dr. Boutros and his wife Katrina, a nurse, using their natural giftedness. I don't even need to get outside of this assembly. I don't need to even talk about Dr. Mitchell. 
and Dr. Boutros and, and Katrina Boutros to start talking about the king using our natural giftedness to serve him. I could name person after person after person that, that has given their life in addition to using the spiritual gifts that God has given them, but to also use the, the natural giftedness. People that play guitars and pianos, people that swing a hammer, people that, that minister thanklessly up in a booth, uh, moving knobs up and down, making sure that things are connected, people that labor fervently to make sure that things get on the internet, things get over to, the, to a, a cable station, people, people that make sure it gets to the radio station so that the Word of God goes from this place. People using their natural giftedness. I can think of, of, of a man sitting just three rows, four rows back, that gave his life, has given his life for the service of the king. I remember when I was just a, a young intern at this church. I used to come and drive in the back. One day, Michael Krosick came running over to me. Come here, come here, come here, come here. And so I run over and, and he says, I think, I think Andy is dead. I said, what do you mean? He's lying down on the ground over here. I, 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 I tried to talk to him, but I, I, he won't wake up. So I went over and I, and I shook him. And he woke up. It's like big, giant Andy Potvin grin. Uh, Andy, is everything okay? Yeah, I was just taking a nap. But he, before he could say that, he had to put his hearing aids back in. Listen, we could go on a long list. So-and-so the beloved carpenter, so-and-so, the beloved electrician, so-and-so, the beloved plumber, so-and-so, the beloved landscaper, so-and-so, the beloved painter, so-and-so, the beloved fix-it person, so-and-so, 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 so-and-so. People that are gifted by God naturally that say, I will use my, my talents in the service of the king. Luke, Luke, I love you. I love Luke. I love Luke so much. Think about this. In Paul's dying hours, before he was to be executed, he said, hey, listen, send Mark to me. He's profitably for the ministry. Only Luke is with me. Why was Luke with Paul? Because Paul's sick. Because Paul's sick. And here's a man gifted to, to be a, a physician who left it all, that he might serve the king by serving the king's servant. A servant of a servant. Listen, this, this is what we're called to, friends. We can make an impact for Christ. The king can enable you to use your natural giftedness for his service. But I want to introduce you to one more. It'll only take just a minute. Don't lose focus. I know it's been a little bit of time here. Point number nine. We've arrived I want to introduce you to one more. And it doesn't start, the point doesn't start the same way. It doesn't start, the king can enable you this time. You've seen a lot of that. Eight of them. Here's number nine. We can lose focus. We can lose focus of the king with disastrous results. Here we are in Colossians and you meeting these beautiful, wonderful people. And Paul says, Luke, in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, 
and Demas greet you. Again, uh, commentators hypothesize, well, he didn't say anything good about Demas here because he knew what was going to happen. And I just want to contend with that, that ridiculous statement. Because the same time he wrote this, he also wrote this in Philemon. He calls Paul, excuse me, he calls Demas one of his fellow laborers. Fellow laborers. Okay, so we've got this Demas guy. Why are you all worked up, Pastor Rob? What, what, what is your, why are you like slowing this whole thing down and making this, this appeal? What, what's going on? Well, because we know what happens in 2 Timothy when Paul is talking about, hey, listen, bring me my cloak, bring me my parchments, bring me the books. I want all this stuff. I forgot them. I left them somewhere. Send Mark. He's profitable me. Only Luke is with me. Why is only Luke with me? Well, I sent, I sent Tychicus off here. I sent this one over this way. And Demas, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. I want to I warn you, and I'm not just warning you, okay, friends? This is not a pointing. This is a, hey, listen, let's learn something. We learn from these lists. Demas was serving. He was a fellow laborer. He was working together. He was a servant of the king in Colossians Chapter 4. And yet, he didn't set his affection on things above, but instead, he set his affection on things of the earth. And that has a disastrous result. We'll go our own way. Listen, look at yourself and your own woes. Look at yourself and your own wickedness. Look at yourself and your own evil. I want to tell you where that will lead you. It won't lead you to repentance. There's only one thing that leads you to repentance when you see Jesus. That brings you to repentance. When you look at you, you've had this, this horrible, terrible taste in your mouth, and you say, Ugh, who would want me? And you know what? You're right. No one should want you, but God does. He's made himself very, very well known to want the least of sinners, the chiefest of sinners. But you look at you. And you look at your circumstance, and you look at the world, and you look at what they have, and what those people have, and you want that thing. You'll follow Demas. You'll follow Demas. He loved this present evil age. He loved the world because he started looking at something other than his Redeemer. You see, have you noticed over the last number of weeks, every point has started, the king can enable husbands to love their wives. The king can enable wives to place themselves under the care of their husbands. The king can enable fathers to disciple rather than um, frustrate their children. Every single point, the king can enable, the king can enable. The king, it, it's, it's about our life. The king can allow us to do this. But you know what? If you dethrone him, if you say, no, you will not be my king, we will not have your cords to, to hold us in, we will not surrender our will, our mind, our soul, our body to you. Friend, friend, I sorrow for you. I sorrow for you if you will not surrender your heart to the king. This king can make you be something you could never be. This king that I know died for you. This king that I know can make you 
just like himself. This king that I know you can make you the perfect worshiper, the perfect servant, the right husband, the right wife, the right father, the right child, the right employee, the right employer. This king can change your life. But you have to let him. Will you surrender your heart to the king? If you lose focus of the king, the results are not good. Demas, Demas found out. And God recorded it for us that we might know. What a testament this portion of the closing of Colossians is to the nature of the king's service. All different types of people, Jews and Gentiles, all different types of ministry, letter carriers, physicians, those who we don't even know what they did, people that have left, yet God brought them back, Mark. People that never left, Aristarchus, Luke, Tychicus. It wasn't about a superstar Paul. Listen, if nobody was there, what would have happened to those letters? Well, God would have used someone else to grab them and distribute them, or God would have used someone else to write them. Yes, you can get all about the sovereignty portion. I'm fully well aware, and and I live my life in relation to that sovereignty. But I'm just asking you, we've got this text before us, what would have happened if those people didn't show up? Humanly, nothing would have happened. Paul would have sat in prison. He would have talked to the guy next to him. End of the story. But God uses all these different types of people, not just the superstar. Not just a special apostle. God used Jesus' justice, who we don't know anything about. A further examination of parallel passages would indicate that God uses both males and females in the, the, his domain as, as the king to accomplish his will. My question for you, it's a, it's a logical question, is do you serve the king? Do you serve the king? In what way are you serving the king? When we're all pulling in the same direction under our king, We will be displaying his awesome power, majesty, and grace. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need your son. We need your spirit. We need your word. And we need one another. Help us never to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think but to think soberly as you have dealt to each one the measure of faith. Help us to recognize that we're not lower than we ought to think or higher than we ought to think. Help us to recognize our place with Jesus, that we are joint heirs together with him, that we are seated in the heavenly places in him, that we have everything that we need to serve you, you Jesus, our King, can enable us to do everything that you have told us to do. And so we surrender our heart. Father, we pray for anyone here that's never surrendered their heart to you, that they might even this day surrender their heart to you, that they might have life, they might have it more abundantly, that they might recognize that their life can be greatly purposeful, can make an impact on others, can be a a source of relief, can be a source of strength. Do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.